Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the viewpoints expressed on this show are not those of Howard Community College, its staff, students, or management. And of course, the information that we convey on this legally related show is not intended to be legal advice. If you have an important legal question in your own life, it's imperative that you contact a lawyer and express all of the facts so you can get a useful opinion on the subject. Today, we're going to take a slightly different turn in the proceedings. We're going to discuss a recent Supreme Court case. I have here my comrade, former college roommate and law partner, Alan Steinhorn. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me today. Always nice to have you back. And there's been some recent opinions emanating from the United States Supreme Court that have some significance. And in this instance, I wanted to focus our attention a little bit on the recent opinion concerning sports gambling that emanated from the Supreme Court. Justice Samuel Alito wrote the majority opinion, came out within the last two weeks, and is thought to have a lot of ramifications, both with respect to sports gambling and myriad other things. And I'd like to kind of get down to the business with you, Alan. This all comes about because of the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. Isn't that right? Well, that's correct, Bob. Powers that are not enumerated in the Constitution are reserved to the states. Okay. So sports gambling is not something that is in the Constitution. You don't think that uh, Benjamin Franklin and those people were thinking about betting on NFL football? I think they were betting. I don't think they were betting on NFL football. Fair point. Fair point. And I think that the Supreme Court has issued an opinion that's going to have monumental consequences. So can you talk a little bit about how this originated? Yes. What happened was the federal government passed a law that prohibited the states from enacting sports betting laws. And this is maybe 25 years or so ago, right? Yes. And the purpose of the law was that the both the NCAA and the professional leagues argued to Congress that the integrity of sports was at issue, that if people were allowed to bet millions and millions of dollars, and by the way, I don't know if this is going to be surprising to your audience or not, but $150 billion per year is bet in sports gambling, illegal sports gambling. And that's just in the United States, correct? That's correct. So New Jersey passed a law in 2011 or 2012 that allows sports gambling. Okay. And the NCAA and the four major professional sports leagues filed a lawsuit to stop that law to prohibit New Jersey from enacting sports gambling laws at their casinos and throughout the state. And the trial court agreed. The trial court said that the federal law would prohibit the state of New Jersey from enacting their own law to allow sports gambling. Okay. It was appealed to the Third Circuit. Uh, New Jersey appealed it, and the Third Circuit also agreed with the trial court. And we're talking about the federal court system, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, correct? That's correct. We have a trial court, and then there's an appeals court. If the party that loses the appeal following what happened in the trial court wishes to appeal further, they can go to the United States Supreme Court. That's what happened in this case. And just recently, within the last few days, the United States Supreme Court has overturned the Third Circuit, overturned the trial court, and ruled that the federal government has no place enforcing its policies and its laws against the states because gambling is not something that was enumerated in the Constitution as belonging within the purview of the federal government. The consequence of this ruling goes beyond gambling. But, okay. for, but for gambling purposes, it's huge because the amount of people betting on sports illegally in this country— um, is huge. And every Super Bowl 
the amount of money waged is just phenomenal. But you think of the NCAA tournament with everybody doing their brackets, too. That's right. So we've kind of, over the last few decades, become a country that's been accepting of gambling. I was raised in a very conservative religious family where I was taught that gambling was immoral. And when I was growing up in Baltimore, or as we called it, Balmer, back in the uh, late 50s and 60s, there was no lottery. There were numbers and organized crime ran numbers. All the neighborhoods had guys that would take your gambling bets. Your bookie. That's right. Now, I lived in Pimlico, where the Pimlico racetrack was. But there were still people that were gambling outside the legal system. The only legal gambling in Maryland when I grew up was at the racetracks. So at some point in my life, I remember that the state said, well, you know what? We're going to take the numbers racket away from organized crime, and we're going to have state lotteries. And I remember from my religious upbringing how crazy that seemed to me because this was a morality. But what the Supreme Court has ruled is that the United States – or excuse me, the, the, the um, United States government cannot regulate morality. And that's in essence what these gambling laws were doing. When I said there are great consequences to this ruling – it seems to me that one could extend the rationale that the Supreme Court used to come to the opinion that gambling is something the states are permitted to do. You could extend this ruling, perhaps, to victimless crimes. Crimes like... Such as? Prostitution. Okay. Possession of cannabis. Okay. Sanctuary cities. Okay. All of these activities are activities that are, in essence, governed under morals and... If the United States Supreme Court says that individuals have a right to bet on sports because it doesn't harm anyone, the same rationale would apply to these other victimless crimes. There are numerous papers that have been written about this and basically suggesting that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, which say that those powers not enumerated in the Constitution to be given to the federal government, shall be left to the states, should apply to cannabis to the enforcement of federal laws in sanctuary cities against immigrants, to prostitution. To me, gambling and prostitution were sort of similar kinds of activities. And I remember the first time I went to Las Vegas was, I believe, around 1980. I would have been 25 years old, and I remember thinking this is exactly what my parents warned me about. Prostitution was legal in Las Vegas. There were areas where one would go if they wanted to utilize those services. I think they were like ranches. Gambling, 24 hours a day. You uh, want to spend money at the gambling tables? There will be very pretty ladies that will show up with free drinks for you. If you continue gambling and spend lots of money, you might get a free room. You might get free meals. But the casino encouraged you to gamble as much money as possible. As soon as I got on that plane and flew out of the state of Las Vegas, that changed. I wasn't permitted to do that anywhere. Well, then the states started saying, we're, we're not going to sit back and watch hundreds of millions of dollars go to organized crime for lotteries, and they instituted state lotteries. I go to restaurants occasionally in Maryland, and there are keno games in the Maryland restaurants. People are playing gambling games while they're eating. We now have lotteries that are multi-state that run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, the likelihood of winning one of those lotteries is infinitesimally small. It's more likely that you're going to be hit by lightning while riding a hippopotamus. But That happened to me once, but go ahead. Did it really? That's, were you okay? Still, I'm not okay. How's the hippo? It's better. <laughs> okay. The lotteries are generating hundreds of millions of dollars for the states. Sports gambling is about to do the same. And I suspect that in the coming years, 
cannabis will probably be legalized for recreational purposes in the states that have not yet legalized it. Prostitution, I think, is going to be a hard, harder burden to overcome. Just because of morality issues that don't exist with respect to something like smoking pot? I believe so. But then also, there are other victimless crimes. Like, once you go down this route, and this is what some people successfully argue, there's a slippery slope to allowing some of these activities that are considered victimless crimes. If we legalize cannabis, should we legalize heroin? Well, I can understand not doing that, but other things like LSD or cocaine or something. Well, it's interesting if you look at, and this is a topic I didn't think we would get into, but if you look at decriminalization across the world, countries that have decriminalized heroin have had reductions in heroin abuse and overdose. Portugal, the Netherlands, Switzerland. Um, Countries that treat it as a health issue rather than a criminal issue find that they can reduce the amount of people taking those substances. But I think this ruling from the Supreme Court in the coming years is going to affect how um, state governments view victimless crimes. And I think it's going to boil down to what life has almost always boiled down to, and that's money. So our award-winning producer, Matt Trudell, was talking to us before the show, and he happened to mention the inclination among people under 21 in the United States to drink like fish, and then they go to college, and if they didn't drink beforehand, then they kind of go bingy, and if they did, then eh, what's the big deal? And I do know from experiences that both my kids have lived in Europe during school years, that there no one thinks anything of wine or beer or anything else, and it's no big deal. You don't really, you know, maybe you get drunk sometimes, but it's nothing like the American binge drinking collegiate experience. And I guess I wonder if the same thing might apply to such things as marijuana. I think there's a taboo element to these activities that make it more desirable. It seemed to me that once people turn 21, and that's the drinking age in Maryland, I seem to think it became less of a big deal to people, and there was a little bit less drinking. There is something to the taboo of an activity that makes it more desirable to do. Um, I agree with you that once people could legally drink, they seem to want to drink a little less. Yeah. So the same thing could happen with cannabis. The same thing could happen with prostitution. I think that it's probably a bigger step to take when we talk about prostitution. I think it's less of a step to take with cannabis because it's being legalized in many places. The fact that it's medically legal in Maryland suggests to me that people will start realizing that the harm that the federal government used to talk about cannabis creating, and I refer people to the movie Reefer Madness, um, doesn't exist. And once people in your family are starting to use cannabis successfully to treat ailments, I think it will open up people's minds to the thought that maybe cannabis is not as evil and harmful as the government used to tell us. I suspect the states are going to start legalizing cannabis, not because they think it's in the best interests of their citizens, but because I think they want a piece of the hundreds of millions of dollars each state is bringing in. I think California has a budget surplus now based on their cannabis industry. I think it's the third or fourth largest crop in the United States. Um, well, I know Washington and Colorado, Alaska, Massachusetts, Maine, there's so many, Oregon, so many states have legalized recreational cannabis use. And from what I understand, there's no greater incidence of people driving when they're incapacitated or anything else. So it, it's I, interesting I, to see the short-term results of that and to see the economic impact of bringing in all the money from the taxes that are visited upon purchases of cannabis. Well, I think that the gambling decision by the Supreme Court is going to affect these other activities that are illegal. And I'll point out one other thing to you. Most of us, when we were in elementary school, learned about the Puritans. 
And the Puritans founded our country. And what were the Puritans? They were very religious and very moralistic. So a lot of our laws that have to do with these victimless crimes have to do with the Puritan value. And if you'll recall, in the 1920s, um, the United States outlawed alcohol. They did. And that was called prohibition. I, I kind of am amused at some of the photographs from that era. Um, one of the popular sayings of the time, um, and, and the movement to outlaw alcohol was to a large extent pushed by women. Um, there was a famous saying that said, if alcohol touches your lips, your lips shall not touch mine. And there were, I suppose, many husbands that were getting drunk and perhaps treating their wives in an improper way. And alcohol became illegal. That had no effect on the amount of alcohol. Well, it bolstered organized crime. It created an industry that formerly didn't exist. There were a lot of bootleggers. Yeah. And they continued to produce their moonshines in the hills of Kentucky and North Carolina. And import things from other countries where it wasn't illegal. One of the greatest scions of one of the greatest American families, the Kennedy family, got its great wealth from importing rum from Jamaica and other Caribbean islands and selling alcohol and scotch and other things from all over the world in the United States. When prohibition was repealed, I believe it was the 21st Amendment. Yes. Then the United States started getting the revenue by taxing alcohol heavily that the bootleggers were getting in profits. And for a period of time, and actually to the present day, bootleggers continue to make alcohol to avoid revenue taxes, but probably more likely because they like the taste of their own moonshine. I can understand that. I think I have a little bit of that moonshine in my... Uh, kitchen cabinet from many years ago from a friend of mine who was down in Kentucky and apparently found a little bit of moonshine. So one has to wonder a couple of different things, and there's different topics. One is it's clear you could sports gamble in Nevada for many years because, you know, there would be groups of people who go out for the NCAA tournament or the NFL playoffs or the NHL mm -hmm. playoffs just to watch the sports and bet on them at the same time. And I guess I wonder a little bit is that something analogous to the apparent willingness on the part of the federal government to allow Washington and Oregon and California and Colorado to sell legal pot and, and tax it? Or, or how did that work exactly? Well, I think that there's a very similar analogy you can make. The Supreme Court is viewing gambling in Nevada. That's fine, but it's not fine in the other states. So the same thing will probably support the rationale for legalizing cannabis and that you've got states where it is legal. Um, it's a little different in the federal government never said we're going to go after um, Nevadans for, for gambling. Well, that's why I kind of wondered why that is, that it was sort of grandfathered in or something? You know, I'm not particularly clear, but I think that's likely. I okay. think that Nevada, before it became a state, probably had gambling activities. I do know that in the 1950s, and this might be allegations – but if you watch the movies like The Godfather and Casino, you will find that organized crime went to Las Vegas in the early 50s. And it was kind of a small desert town. There really wasn't much there. And turned it into one of the greatest amusement gambling areas in the world. It is now, I understand, because I haven't been to Las Vegas in over 20 years, but it's a very family-friendly place. I haven't been there. I know you have. It can be. 
And a lot of Americans go there for other than gambling purposes. But I will say that when I went there in the around 1980, I remember walking into the casino. I think the first one I walked into was MGM and immediately feeling wide awake as the higher oxygen concentrate hit me. The casinos have a higher oxygen concentrate in their um, air conditioning units um, in order to keep people awake. Makes sense. But I think that you may start seeing at the Maryland casinos, perhaps at MGM over at Harbor Place, maybe at Maryland Live, I would believe that, or I would expect that we'll start seeing some of these sports gaming rooms the way you did in Las Vegas. I do remember friends of mine who would travel to Las Vegas for a vacation before the Super Bowl to place their bets. I recall placing a... um, a bet in Las Vegas for the Washington Redskins. I was out there a couple of years ago and bought you a ticket you on did. the Redskins, and somebody well, else won on the Terps and well, all our in, favorites. In 1983, I think I had a 20 to 1, $20 bet on the Redskins to win the Super Bowl, and darn it if the Oakland Raiders didn't prevent me from winning about $400 that day. So it seems as though the reach of the federal law on gambling was all encompassing except for Las Vegas. Probably for political reasons. And state and, lotteries. They didn't seem to have well, a problem they, with state they lotteries. they did, but I mean, state lotteries were impermissible for a long time, too. That's correct. A lot of this stuff has been a gradual eroding of people's prohibitions against gambling. I mean, gambling is fairly present. When I go to the grocery store, uh, well, our favorite country store, Borman's, we'll give them a plug. Uh, Borman's Country Store in Highland, Maryland. I go in there and people are buying lottery tickets. I go there to shop for groceries and for butcher meats, but I can buy lottery tickets there. And when it's about $500 million, I do buy lottery tickets. So one wonders how much of the opinion from Judge Alito with respect to sports gambling is a function of recognizing the reality that billions of dollars are being gambled and that the states and the United States are not getting a piece of the action. Uh, I, I think that's a practical consideration, and I will just add a cynical comment. Okay. And that is I've been a practitioner now for 34 years, and I always thought that the law had a very black and white component to it, that you could say, well, if this happens, the law is pretty clear, then that happens. If these are the facts, then this is what happens. But I've become cynical over the years to believe that now judges on the Supreme Court conclude what they think is the proper result and then use the law to get there. This opinion basically states that the states have the right to do this. You could make that argument on the other side by saying the states don't have the right to do this because it's a ba- basically a decision like this is a balancing act. The harm that one suffers by the activity versus the right of people to be free from governmental interference. So the government's going to intervene and protect you from harming yourself. And what I think the Supreme Court said is that the balancing in this instance favors government getting out of our lives and letting us gamble. Interesting. In fact, the legal theory of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the Tenth Amendment being those rights not enumerated to the federal government belong to the states, is that it's called the doctrine of commandeering, where the federal government is commandeering the states and making the states enforce federal policies and laws. Which they do on innumerable things. And what Judge Alito and the Supreme Court said in this case is, we are not going to permit the federal government to commandeer the states to enforce anti-gambling laws because they're not in the Constitution. The same can be said about prostitution, 
cannabis, sanctuary cities protecting immigrants, abortion. Although abortion is a little different in that the justices of the Supreme Court, in the case of Roe v. Wade, found that the Constitution did enumerate a right to privacy, which would be given to women in the states, and that the federal government could enact laws that prohibited the states from preventing abortions because of the Tenth Amendment. And because it is in the Constitution, sure. they've said there's a right of privacy in the Constitution. Since the right is in the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment doesn't apply, and it doesn't give the states that right. It actually is an interesting focus for an ongoing discussion that has affected the Supreme Court during my lifetime, and that is the notion Judge Scalia put forth about originalist, original intent. Things that are in the Constitution when it was written in the 18th century are the only things that are sacrosanct under federal law and under the Constitution. And the idea of a living Constitution is something that doesn't really exist in his mind. And it does create tensions in the modern world because they weren't thinking about cell phones or satellites back in the 18th century so much. Well, I'm going to make a political statement as we close the show. We're not closing yet, baby. All right. Voting has consequences. So Judge Alito rendered this decision on gambling. But this week there was also a decision that had to do with employers' rights and employee rights, ruling that employees do not have the right to join together to fight an employer to sue them in court in class actions. This is a huge ruling. And what I want to point out is that had Uh, Merrick Garland been appointed to the Supreme Court by Obama. This decision ruling that employees have no rights to file class action claims against their employers would have been the opposite. Sure. And this is a further erosion of employee rights when we talk about uh, wage stagnation and the fact that uh, wages have not been going up. Take a look at the effect of the Supreme Court rulings and governmental rulings on labor unions and the rights of employees to collectively bargain. We have, uh, over the last 30 to 40 years, eliminated unions in this country. People no longer have pensions. People no longer have collective bargaining rights. And when the employer does something that harms an employee, all you can do is go to arbitration. Win your $12 a week raise that they've deprived you of or monies that they've deprived you of, but it costs you $3,500 to hire a lawyer to get your $12 a week. If 1,000 employees each lose $12 a week and they hire a lawyer, it's worth it to pursue. But now people will not be able to find lawyers pursuing their $12 cases. So your vote has consequences. These rulings by the Supreme Court are based on the people that are in the Supreme Court at the time. Cases get overturned. Plessy versus Ferguson held um, that African-American students did not have a right to be integrated into white schools as long as they were given separate but equal facilities. In 1954, in Brown versus Education, a different set of Supreme Court justices said, no, that's bad law, and we have to integrate the schools so that people have diversity, and it affects everyone when you segregate the races. So cases can be overturned depending on who's in the Supreme Court. Think hard about whether or not you choose to go vote. So it's sort of interesting that it seems as though this opinion is a tacit recognition of the fact people are going to gamble and that the governments may as well get a piece of the action and, you know, that that has a greater societal benefit going forward. I would just say the opinion isn't written quite the way you've put it, but I agree that that is basically what's happening here. Yes. That's not how they wrote it. It's all about the Constitution and the amendments and the state rights versus federal rights. Well, I guess 
it's so hard for me to understand why a state wouldn't participate in this going forward. Puritanism, Bob. Well, I don't think here in Maryland – I mean, I I read an article yesterday in The Sun, I think, that was suggesting that, you know, they may get around to sports gambling by the year 2022. And, of course, Delaware is already set up to do it, apparently, in anticipation of this Supreme Court opinion. And and you can't help but think – you know, I mean, maybe you don't want to race to embrace it because you don't want to harm chronic gamblers and ruin their families or something. I don't really understand. Well, the rationale for the law was to keep the integrity of sports alive. The fear was that there would be incentives for athletes to throw games. There would be incentives for gamblers to well, get Well, there have involved. been famous point-shaving incidents at the collegiate level and at the professional level both. But that was the purpose of the law, the New Jersey law that um, or the federal law was in part drafted by Bill Bradley, who was the state sen- a United States senator from New Jersey. And a fantastic NBA basketball but, player. But who also was a professional basketball player. And he felt that organized crime could influence the outcome of games. And that's why he wanted gambling to be prohibited. Um, I still think that is a possibility, but I don't think that is enough to outweigh legalizing it for the states. I do believe that as the money starts coming into the neighboring states, you're going to see a state like Maryland hurry their uh, enactment of gambling on sports. And I'll just point out to you, one of the reasons that Maryland got casinos when they did is because they were losing a lot of their residents to New Jersey casinos. And they said, you know what? And West Virginia and Delaware and These folks are all going to be gambling anyway. Why should we have them leave the state of Maryland? We'll take a piece of that. They've made a ton of money. It it is also an interesting thing in looking at this case as we wrap up. It was sort of an anomalous thing where professional sports leagues and the NCAA, you know, which is the governing body for collegiate sports, were vehemently opposed to allowing this gambling to go forward. And, of course, now they're going to embrace it as a mechanism for getting more viewership. You know, uh, it it seems pretty clear fantasy football has driven – like I watch, you know, my favorite team, the Washington Redskins, with my son who's a Redskins fan. But he often cares more about the other games and wants to check in with them because of his fantasy stuff. And I would have to think fantasy is great. But I would think if you had wagers on the performance of players and wagers on other teams and wages on how many over under and all those things, it's going to drive viewership of every professional sport vastly higher. And you would think those professional sports would be thrilled. I agree with you. It's going to uh, raise viewership. But also the sports leagues are seeking to impose a 1% tax. I think that um, Mr. Silver, the NBA commissioner, is proposing that if sports gambling is allowed on the NBA, that the NBA get 1% of all gambling revenue. I don't know that, <laughs> that the I states are going to do that. I don't think they can control that. But I do agree with you. I, I know that my son-in-laws are all following uh, numerous football games because of fantasy leagues, and I've never been into fantasy leagues. I think to some extent it's generational. I'm into my team. But they will watch sports for all afternoon just to watch how their players do rather than any particular team. So the fact that sports gambling is going to occur uh, suggests to me that there's going to be a lot more viewership. Well, I would think this would be beneficial to the states and local governments that get a percentage, some kind mm-hmm. of tax on this. I think it would be beneficial to the networks and to the leagues and the league owners. But I would think ultimately if viewership goes 
goes up, you're going to find that the new contract for the NFL or, or the NCAA, that kind of thing, is going to be much bigger, which is going to allow the players to earn more money for their efforts as I think well. That, I think that's likely. I think you're going to see an explosion of sports gambling in the coming years. The problem I perceive is going to be with collegiate, and that might be an entirely separate show, but you presently have a situation where these kids aren't being paid effectively. You know, they get their some academic support and they get a scholarship, but they're not getting a piece of this multi-billion dollar NCAA pie. And I do worry that that would be something where they might be more susceptible to having gamblers pay them off and rig games. Well, when you think about about the amount of money that collegiate sports generates, I mean, the jerseys, um, they use the players to advertise their teams. I think that eventually there's going to be a turnaround. The athletes are going to start getting money. Well, various schools have – I know that the Big Ten is implementing a much greater sort of giving a stipend in addition to, you know – but I just don't see how you can have these kids not be affected by this enormous gambling industry and the drive to make the NCAA bigger. I mean, they're talking about adding four more teams for the men's tournament and that kind of thing, and that they don't see something out of this that's beneficial to them. Well, I don't think – we know all the changes that are going to occur in the coming years because of this change in the law. But $150 billion, I mean, not millions, a billion dollars, that's a thousand million dollars. All going either to illegal entities or to like Patty Power in Ireland or these entities around the world mm-hmm. that do permit online betting and are not in the United States. Bob, think of it. You're going to see people online gambling with their cell phones. You know, I I can see where there's potential for bad things to happen, oh, but professor, I feel like it's professor, inevitable. Can I just have a moment, please? I've only got four minutes left to place my bet. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that'll happen in any classrooms, but I bet it'll be going on in people's minds. Well, it is fascinating how something you get a Supreme Court opinion that says sports gambling's okay and there are ramifications for so many other aspects of American life that you didn't foresee when you first read a blurb in the newspaper that this thing was up for argument, you know? Plus, I will tell you that I would enjoy voting on my team in the Super Bowl. I'm not a gambler, but I could see putting $20 down on the Super Bowl and having it to be quite fun. And eventually that'll probably happen in Maryland where I can legally do that. Well, on that note, as a fellow Redskin fan, let's hope that this is the year. Thank you very much, Alan. This is a fascinating topic, something that I suspect will cross our paths again in the future. This has been Everyday Law.